This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome in to the Hoist the Colors podcast. We are nearly 48 hours removed from the ECU loss to Central Florida here on Monday night as we record the podcast. And man, it still stinks. Uh, It still stinks. You got to wonder how much sleep Pirate coaches and players are getting. After the 2016 loss in Orlando, I'm Stephen Igo, the host of the Hoist the Colors podcast. Podcast, the publisher of hoistedcolors.net. As always, in our post game edition, we are taking your questions on the Hoisted Colors message board. We've got a ton to get to, mostly thanks to one poster in particular who asked me, I think, 15 questions in one post. So we're shortly going to get into answering your questions and let that carry the show as we often do on the post game podcast. Uh, if you've, if you're a member of Hoisted Colors or if you just are on Twitter or have read my VIP takeaways article, you probably already know my thoughts on this game. I mean, it, it much like the South Carolina game, it was a golden opportunity that slipped through ECU's grasp would have been a, I don't know if I would go as far as say a program changing win, but it would have been a season changing win. you get that victory, all of a sudden, not only are you thinking a bowl game is a, a very realistic possibility but you're thinking about conference standings you're thinking about seven eight wins and I still think six seven wins is certainly gettable uh given how the American is unfolding I don't think there's a week ECU can't expect and 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 you know take the field expecting to win on the schedule outside of maybe Cincinnati I think Houston's really good I think they're gettable though if ECU plays its best game so you know, I don't know. I mean, I, there are so many ways you could you could go after a game like that, and I get it. You know, you have to find the 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 balance between the frustration from the game, the individual game itself, which everybody should be frustrated. A lot of people are pissed off, and they should be. I mean, that should have been a victory on Saturday in the bounce house. Um, you know, the, you have to be able to separate though the individual game from the big picture of the program. And it's tough in the moment. And that's why I generally like doing these podcasts uh, at least 24 hours or so after the game to kind of to take a step back, evaluate everything, rewatch the game as much as possible, you know, talk to some people, get the real sense of, hey, what actually happened on that fourth and eight play? What actually happened on the Mason Garcia play on third and goal? Like, it's not just as simple as often we want it to be as, hey, that was a terrible call, et cetera, et cetera. We want somebody to blame in the moment because we're so frustrated and emotional, and I get that. That's part of being a fan. But I do like trying to bring some perspective, some balance to it um, in the postgame podcast. We'll, we'll get into that with a lot of the uh, the questions. I'm going to say up front, we already got multiple questions about you know candidates to replace Donnie Kirkpatrick as, as the offensive coordinator all that stuff. I'm not going to get into potential candidates in the middle of the season, guys. I mean, it's just, it, it's, um, you know, I get that that's what message boards are for, to speculate that stuff, but I'm not going to talk about on a public forum, you know, candidates to replace a, an offensive coordinator who's going to probably coach, uh, or who's going to coach the rest of the season. There's six games left, um, so there's a lot to still be played out this year, and I'm not going to, you know, talk about what candidates – could replace him because right now that's not really even on anybody's mind inside the program. It might be on you know the fans' mind for obvious reasons. They're not happy with the offense. I can tell you, there's not a lot of people you know within the program that are probably happy with the offense right now. I think everybody expected it to be better, so I get the frustration. I get the 
you know, the questions as to why can ECU score 52 points against Tulane and then can't score 20 against South Carolina and against uh, UCF. And part of that is personnel they're facing, but part of that, and a big part of it, is the lack of execution on ECU's side. And at times, you know, questionable, uh, you know, play play calling, questionable, you know, uh, situations that the players are being put into. You know, we'll get more into the Mason Garcia situation, and it wasn't just a design run up the middle that had no chance. There was a read on the play. But even still, I just don't love putting in that package there on third and goal with the drive really on the line. You know, first and goal, I get it. Second and goal, maybe. Or third and goal from the one, when it's a much more higher percentage play. Third and goal from the four or five, not a huge fan of that play. Um, and I went back and rewatched it. Even if he gives it to Ryan Jones on the jet sweep, which it was a design play, I'm not sure Jones scores. You know, they had four guys on that side, uh, four or five guys for three or four blockers. I can't. I know the offensive lineman was pulling, but I think they still had an extra guy on that side. So it would have been Jones versus a UCF DB or linebacker to get into the end zone. Maybe he wins. Maybe he gets in. Certainly would have had a better chance than going up the middle. Uh, which Mason did and got absolutely stuffed by two guys. But, you know, I'm still not a huge fan of that call in that moment. So, but it is what it is. We'll get more into that. Uh, You know, back to what I was saying, the big picture side of it is, you know, this team, this program, and I know people don't want to hear this after a loss, but the fact of the matter is this program is moving in the right direction. Yes, Dylan Gabriel, yes, their running back, receiver, couple, you know, defensive linemen, et cetera, were out on Saturday. But, I, you know, when I was in Orlando in 2019, and that was a very good UCF team, but it was also the first year of the Mike Houston era, and just it was, I think, 35-3, 35-7 at half, and it was just a non-competitive football game. I mean, it was like UCF was going through the motions, and they were still torching ECU at every position, at every position on the field. It was a clinic. Second half, they basically slept, walked through it. ECU caught them by surprise with a couple things. They made it a game. But, you know, just the team I saw that year in Orlando and having the same vantage point in the press box two years later and seeing the growth of the roster, the the growth in physicality across the board, there are still some areas where ECU has to, has to continue to improve. You know, the fronts especially are young, especially the defensive front. You know, the offensive line, I think you've, You've got some guys who have been in the program who probably aren't as athletic as what UCF's defensive front was bringing at them, and that caused a lot of issues. And we'll get more into that uh, with our questions as well. But the overall growth of the program is uh, is definitely happening, and you can question some of the decisions by the coaches, you know, some of the execution by the players, all that stuff, in terms of the individual game. I get that. Like, there are legitimate gripes to be had, but you also have to credit those same people for putting in the work to put the program in the position to now where they can go on the road at Marshall and win against a quality program. And I know Marshall barely beat Old Dominion, uh, but we're also talking about a Marshall team that beat Navy 49 to seven, probably should have beat App State on the road. So it's a quality win. Um, And you look at now they go to UCF, probably should have won the game. Yeah. Down UCF team compared to past years. Yes. An injured UCF team, but still, a UCF team that is recruited at the highest level in the American, the 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 conference ECU is trying to win for the past handful of years. So they have talent. I don't care who is out. They have legitimate guys. I mean, Big Cat Bryant is a freaking monster at defensive end, the Auburn transfer. Uh, they've got transfers who are legit. They've got high school talent that has panned out. So they have talent. The quarterback, Mikey Keene, is young. He's going to be a big-time player by the end of his career. So... Um, it's not like they were just out there playing against some scrub on Saturday. Um, and I thought ECU looked apart. I mean, they looked like the better team for the majority of the game. South Carolina game was the same way. Again, South Carolina is down. They have offensive issues for sure. But that's two games that ECU as a program is now in the position to win. And that's a long way from 2019 when really probably even against both those teams as they're currently constructed, Pirates were lost by 20, 30 points just because they would not have been able to handle the speed or physicality from both sides. So now we're here at this point, and ECU is back to being competitive week in and week out. And now they have to take the next step and win these games more consistently. They got one at Marshall. 
in a game that w- could have gone either way. The Pirates come back. They make the play at the end to win. South Carolina and UCF, they did not make the plays to win. Or they did not, you know, make the right play calls, whatever you want to say. They, they did not find a way to win as a team, as a coaching staff, as players in these two games. So you have to, uh, you obviously have to talk about that because we cover the games and we evaluate the games and try to break down what we saw, what we see. And uh, it was a frustrating loss at the end of the day. But I just want to make sure people understand the big picture. The program is moving in the right direction. You can be frustrated with the loss, but also realize that this thing is on a good trajectory. If they would have gone down to UCF and got hammered by 30, 20, 30 points, then yeah, I'd be, I'd be a lot more worried about the program long-term than I am now. But, you know, the 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 type of, you know, the, the way they played at times on Saturday was really promising. You know, I look at that, that fourth quarter first drive, and I know people always get mad when they run the football a lot because I think it, you know, when it doesn't work, it looks ugly. But that first drive in the fourth quarter when they were just lining up and running it down the UCF's throats, it's really a shame that they could not finish that drive with a touchdown because if they do, the, the game's probably over, and that's the best drive of the Mike Houston era. You're talking about taking it and shoving it down UCF's throats on his home field, which, by the way, they entered the game 25-2 and in their last 27 games at home. And ECU had a chance to put, put the game away there. If Holton Aylers hits that pass to Omotosho, the game's probably over. Uh, so that that's the fine line between winning and losing. And everybody wants to blame the coaches, and there's legitimate gripes about whatever play calls, timeouts, all that stuff. I get it. Everything's magnified. But we can't just ignore you know, the execution side of it, too. If Keaton Mitchell doesn't fumble, Ehlers hits that pass to Omotosho. If he runs it in instead of throwing to C.J. Johnson in the back of the end zone. You know, there, there's so many little things. If Sarad Ware makes that tackle on the uh, the big run that got UCF inside the 10 on their final drive, Jaquan McMillan had a chance to make a huge tackle on UCF's touchdown play. Couldn't get uh, the running back on the ground. You know, the four down play, the coverage, if the if one of the linebackers actually would have stayed up and got the back, it probably would have worked. But, you know, so, so you can you can blame the coaches, you can blame the players, whatever. It's just there's such a fine line between winning and losing. And if, if one of those plays is made, you know, I don't think anybody's really mad right now. Some people may still be disappointed in the offense or whatever, but it's a much different tune. So that that is where the program is now. It's to the point where, hey, you're on the verge of really not just turning the corner, but you know, getting to the top half of this conference and really beating some of the more talented teams in this league. So just some general thoughts there before we dive into these questions. All right, let's go. Let's get into these things. And again, some of this stuff, I'm going to answer the questions the best I can. Some of these questions I just can't answer because it's up in the air. I don't know. But all right, we'll start off with uh, Pirate, spelled P-I-E-R-A-T-E. He says, prospective offensive coordinators to replace Donnie Kirkpatrick. Again, not going to get into that for obvious reasons, as I stated earlier. Uh, Chances Holt Naylor's transfers. Again, this is something that, you know, there's six games left. What I can tell you right now is Holt Naylor's has not made a decision on next year. And is it going to until the end of the year? So, you know, I, I don't know. He, he'll have his degree in December. You know, there's obvious he's got to make a decision one way or the other if he wants to keep playing at ECU or if he wants to, to technically finish his career elsewhere, which is a possibility. Or maybe he just wants to try and go pro or be done with football. All those things are options for Holton Aylers. And, and no decision has been made. And no decision will be made until the end of the year. So I cannot answer that. Anything would be speculation. So chances Holton Naylor's transfers, I guess there's a chance because it's an option. But I can't get inside Holton Naylor's head right now. And everything is still hanging in the balance. This is a 3-3 three and three football team. They could finish 7-5, and 8-4. and four. They could finish 4-8, and 5-7. and seven. I mean, everything is in front of them, and all that will have an impact on what happens to Holton Aylers and what happens to other parts of the roster. Uh, he also asks, when can we expect C.J. Johnson to not take playing time from guys clearly better than him? Well, C.J. Johnson only played, I think, 37, 38 snaps 
in the game against UCF, the offense was out there for, I think, 70 snaps or so. And so he played almost less than half the snaps. So I would say last game, you know, the the coaches felt probably that uh, Omotosho and combination of Hatfield or Sneed, Omotosho, the tight ends, gave ECU a better chance to move the football. And so CJ did not play a ton last game. And I think you're at the point now where, you know, we, we know what CJ can do. He's done it in the past. But until he goes out there and does it consistently – he kind of has to earn his way back into being that number one receiver. Right now, it's just not happening. He only got targeted once or twice in the UCF game, did not have a catch, so it's not like they're force-feeding him the ball. Donnie Kirkpatrick said last week they want to kind of let the game just happen, and one of these days, C.J. Johnson will will have a big game. I think he's too talented not to. I don't think he's at the point now, especially getting probably the best corner or a ton of attention every week where he's going to go out there and you can't count on him to be the number one because if you try and force feed him the ball over the last year and a half, we've seen too many targets his way that have gone incomplete. And that's when you start getting behind the chains when you throw too many incomplete passes. You know, his catch per target rate last year was not good. As a freshman, it was good. And then he started getting other teams' best corners. He gets held a lot. For whatever reason, does not get the call. Probably because he's not extremely fast, so he doesn't separate to get those calls. But, you know, teams hold him. They grab him. They try to get on him. And it's it's worked for the past year and a half. So, you know, something I would like to see them try with CJ is utilize him more in the slot. You know, they did that at times last year, and it worked. You know, I, I watch him at outside receiver, and... I just don't know if he's fast and explosive enough to be like a true number one outside guy. I almost wonder if he'd almost work better as like an inside hybrid tight end type, kind of like Ryan Jones is right now, um, just to get better matchups. Because with he, when he's with the corner right now, he just doesn't have the speed or quickness to kind of separate from those guys. Maybe if he got matched up on a linebacker or safety, it'd be more advantageous. But... I don't know. I mean, that's something that the the coaching staff will have to look at during the bye. Uh, Parker Pirate, he asked, why do we never run two backs in the backfield and do some type of misdirection? It's always delayed handoffs. You know, the, you know, I hear that a lot. You know, why are, why are our running plays so slow to develop? I don't, you know, I've watched a lot of college football. I don't think ECU's running plays are that slow to develop. I think it just looks slow because the guys are getting hit at the line of scrimmage sometimes because guys aren't blocking people. Um... You want to talk about a slow developing play, watch Wake Forest. They run their RPO system to perfection, and it's the slowest developing plays in the world. The mesh point lasts about two full seconds at times as the quarterback reads the play. So I don't think it's I don't think it's a delayed handoff situation. As to, as far as your never run two backs in the backfield, um that, you know, somebody, I think it was Ronnie Wilbert asked in one of his final press conferences about that, and they just said they, you know, it's a situation where they don't feel like it's super advantageous to have both of those guys in the game at the same time because essentially you're just telling one to be a decoy. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I would like to, I wouldn't mind seeing that package, though, where you have split backs with Keaton Mitchell and Roger Harris in the game just to see how the defense defends it. You know, you don't see a lot of two-back sets in general in college or the NFL these days. I mean, that's just kind of the facts. It's, it's usually single-back, tight end, three receivers, or single-back, two tight ends, two receivers. So it's just something that's not super prevalent in football these days, uh, unless you're an option team. But maybe they could add a rink or two in the bye week to kind of throw a different look out there for the second half of the season. All right, ECU for you and me. Here come, uh, I think, around 15 questions and one here. All right, so I'm going to do my best to answer these. Some of these I, I, are, are going to be tough, but I'll try. I'll try, my man. I know where you're coming from, but and I get the frustration, but uh, some of these are are tough to answer. All right, number one, why not call timeout on UCF's third and goal and save 40 to 50 seconds? On the final drive, why not use the timeouts with six seconds left six seconds left instead of waiting for the official to start the clock and burn three seconds. With six seconds, we could have had a quick out pass and then a shorter field for Hail Mary. 
Uh, number all right, so that was the number one question. Two questions in one. Uh, yeah, the the timeout or the lack of timeout on third and goal. You know, I agree with that. I I would have liked to seen uh, the coaching staff use the timeout there. You know, I guess you could make the argument that if you call a timeout and there's around a minute left and they don't get the uh, the touchdown and they go for it or they kick a field goal and miss it, basically if they turn it over on down somehow, then they have still around a minute left and two timeouts and they could theoretically get the ball back with you pinned deep inside their own territory. But at the same time, it, it seemed pretty clear they were at least going to come away with a field goal there. If you call the timeout... You have the time, even with no timeouts remaining when you get the ball back. The time, to me, is always more valuable than the timeout. You can never put more time on the clock. So I always would say you want to have as much time on the clock as possible. So I would like to see a timeout there. I don't know if it would have mattered because UC would have still had to get a touchdown and they would have had to do it with a minute and no timeouts. They couldn't really block UCF's front, which is a whole other discussion. Uh, but, yeah, I would have liked to see the timeout because then you have a realistic shot of at least scoring. With 23 seconds and the ball at your own 20, you're not scoring more times than not. The percentages are super low. Uh, on the final drive, why not use the timeout with six seconds left? I, d- I don't know if there was a miscommunication there and they thought that the clock was not going to run or what. Um, But, yeah, I mean, they ended up using the timeout after UCF used the timeout, which was interesting. So, and they drew up the play they drew up. So, it is what it is. I mean, I don't think that one made a huge difference either way. The the one I have, I guess, more of a question about is, is the the non-timeout when UCF was about to score. Uh, next question from ECU for you and me. Speaking of last play, instead of a short pass and counting on 15 miracle pitches to teammates to go 65 yards through their entire D, why not throw a pass to the 15, 20-yard line and pitch back to Josiah Sneed or someone to get the last 15 yards? Well, it's hard to draw up a precision 45 to 50-yard pass and then have a pitch man go off of that. I mean, the defense is basically playing from the, the 10 to 15 to the goal line. So if you're throwing the ball to the 15, you're basically throwing a Hail Mary. I mean, Holton doesn't have the arm where he's going to throw a laser and then you're going to get Sneed coming downfield. I mean, that's just that would just be a a next-to-impossible play to execute. So your best chance there is to do some type of lateral, you know, whether it be what they did, which never works anyways. Your best chance is to throw a Hail Mary into the end zone, and Holton just doesn't have the arm where he can throw it 65 yards through the air. So it is what it is. You just would rather not put yourself in that situation. I don't have a big problem with what they tried. Uh, Is there a reason our third down percentage is so low? He asks, most times it's third and long, and we call plays that have a slim chance to be completed by Holton Aylers, a sideline pass most times. Well, I mean, third down percentage is so low uh, because it is always third and long. I mean, even early in the game, ECU just struggled, or ECU struggled to get into good position. They were able to convert a few third downs. They also had another third down conversion with Holton Aylers on the scramble drill where he broke two tackles. This team is just not equipped to go third and long. I mean, Holton has his strengths, but he's not really a traditional drop-back passer where he's going to drop back on third and 12, survey the field, and throw a bullet in between double coverage. Like That's just not his game. So you have to get in third and medium. He's more, you know, to me, he's better on the quick game where he can utilize the middle of the field, and obviously he can utilize his legs. It doesn't even have to be a design run, but on third and four, he's got a much better chance of taking off on a scramble than third and ten and getting that first down. So uh, the the reason the third down percentage is so low is because, A, they're in third and long a lot because of their inability to pick up yards on first and second down consistently. Um, you know, as far as the, the plays that have a slim chance to be completed, I mean, that's because the defense is they're going to take away the middle of the field on third and long. More times than not, they know that's Holton Aylers' strength, and so they're not going to let him complete a ball over the middle. They're going to make him complete a ball outside the numbers, which is a tougher throw, and most defenses opt to do that against college quarterbacks. So um, bottom line, just don't put yourself in third and long. It's not an advantageous position. We've been talking about this for like a year and a half now, and it is what it is. All right, AC for you and me asked when we 
And when we do have quick short passes over the middle to the wide receivers, Holt Naylor's throws behind them. Why? Well, he just, he just made an inaccurate throw. He missed the throw to Hatfield on Saturday. And I, that's the only one I remember where he threw it over behind him. But, I mean, all quarterbacks missed throw. He missed one to Hatfield. Uh, Holton has improved his completion percentage and his accuracy the last few years. I still don't think he's the most accurate drop-back passer in college football, and I don't think he ever will be. So, again, you got to call plays to his strengths, and it's not like he's intentionally missing the throws. Uh, next question, why not have routes where our receivers go 12, 7 to 12 yards and stop? Holton Aylers has a better chance of hitting a standing target than a running one, say, to the tight end. Well, I mean – those routes are in the, the playbook. I mean, 7 to 12 y- yards and stop, that's basically only going to work against zone coverage, too. You can't just run uh, a bunch of routes like that against man coverage or else no one's going to be open. In zone, you're looking to find somewhere in between coverage. So a lot of it depends on what you, what defense you're running. Um, if you just have Tyler Snead or C.J. Johnson and everybody running you know, 7 to 12 yard hook routes or comeback routes, you know, you got to be more diverse, I guess I would say. Uh, yeah, certainly if those plays are always open, Holton Aylers to have a field day, but the defense is going to try and take away those easy throws. All right, let's continue on with these questions. Could Mike Houston have used a timeout to ask for a review on the face mask call? Seems like he never burns timeouts asking for a review. No, you cannot uh, use a timeout to review a penalty. And so there's nothing he could do there. The refs just missed it. Uh, the decision-making by Holton Aylers on big plays, he asked, don't we practice these situations to be prepared? The quarterback coach teaches the quarterbacks when to run, when to hold on a read option, when to not throw a pass beyond the line of scrimmage, when to throw out of bounds rather than take a sack, when to look past your pri- primary option to quickly scan for second option. Yeah, I mean, all these things are practiced. Throughout preseason camp, throughout the week, uh, Mike Houston said on his coach's show today, that they uh, even put Holt Naylor's, I think, in a situation either in today's practice or sometime uh, to try and put him under pressure as he's rolling out to either make that decision or run. So that's something they do practice. You know, I will say it's it's easy to sit up in the stands and say, hey, you had 15 yards of green grass in front of you. You should have ran. But when you're out there in the heat of the moment and you have a 300-pound dude chasing you, Things are moving 100 miles an hour. It's not as easy as it seems from the bird's eye view. So I'm not making excuses for Holton Aylers, but it's not like he's out there thinking, oh, well, I can run it here, but I'm just going to try to make this insane pass in the back of the end zone. I mean, I think if he had a chance to do it over again, he'd probably run. So it's not like he's out there intentionally making these poor decisions. It just happens in the heat of the moment. Some quarterbacks have better feel than other. Um, There's been times when Holton has made great decisions to run. There's been times when he hasn't. So... But those things are practiced. Uh, if Holton Aylers gets confused in these situations, he asks, isn't that on his teacher for three years, Donnie Kirkpatrick, on Donnie Kirkpatrick's preparation and Holton Aylers' comfort with this? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I guess that's fair. You, uh, here's the thing. You have the yeah, – you guys should see how many texts I get during the game because I've got, like, 20 people who think everything is Holton Aylers' fault and then I have, like, 20 people who thinks um, – Everything is Donnie Kirkpatrick's fault. And you have this you have this group of people who are like, Donnie's holding Holton back. And you have this group of people who are saying that Holton's holding Donnie back. So I don't know. I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe Holton Aylers is the next Gardner Minshew. Everybody thought Gardner Minshew sucked when he was at ECU. You know, you could certainly see the arm talent. There was a reason he beat out Thomas Sirk even after Sirk came in as Scotty's guy. But he was benched by the first first half of the first game. And kind of the rest is history. So, you know, I don't know if Holton Aylers is is is, be- is so much better than he's playing due to coaching or scheme or what. You know, I wish I knew. I, I don't, you know, I don't know. We won't know unless one part of the formula changes, and then we could see maybe what it would look like in a different situation. But, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's it, – all I know is this. We've seen – this offense for three years, we've seen much of the same personnel, the same quarterback, and we continue to see the same inconsistency. So what does that tell you? You can draw your own conclusions. Again, plenty of people think one thing, plenty of people think the other. 
you know, it's up to, at the end of the day, it's up to the coaches to decide what are the problems, how do we fix them, do we need to change philosophy, do we need to change personnel, et cetera. You know, Donnie Kirkpatrick has said if it was as easy as switching one quarterback out for the other, it would already happen. So clearly Donnie thinks the problem is not Holton Aylers based on his past comments. Mike Houston has said the same thing. So I don't know. I mean, I, one thing I do know is that, you know, the offensive line has made progress specifically in run blocking, but pass protection is still an issue at times. Um, UCF, according to Pro Football Focus, splits two times, two times on 36 dropbacks, and 16 out of 36 dropbacks, it was deemed that Holton Aylers was under pressure. That's nearly half the time dropping back. And if you're under pressure that much against a four-man rush and the other team is dropping seven, you can't have a passing game. You can't have a consistent passing game. And I think that's what we saw Saturday. You've got to be able to protect against a four-man rush. And at times, this offensive line has looked improved pass blocking, but there have been games like this one. Marshall was a struggle until the fourth quarter where they just seemed overwhelmed. Um, and again, the run blocking has improved, especially from year one, but that is an issue that has to be accounted for. You know, not everything is always Donnie Kirkpatrick or Holt Naylor's fault. We can't just continue to do this. You know, the wide receivers – We've talked about this on the podcast before. I think are inconsistent. I think the receiver position right now, as it's constructed at ECU, is not as strong as it's been as in the past decade or so. You know, the, a lot of the a lot of the parts of the team have improved under this coaching staff. Feels like the wide receivers have taken a step back for whatever reason. All right. Don't you think? As we continue on with the questions, don't you think that Mason Garcia or Ryan Stubblefield can zip a pass? to an open wide receiver. Yeah, I mean, both those guys have great arm strength. So, yes, to answer your question. Uh, why no pitches to running backs wide? Why barely any man in motion plays? You know, they've run a decent amount of, of motion jet sweeps over the past few games, so I don't think that's an issue. Um, I would like to see C.J. Johnson in motion a little more. You know, he does it every now and then, but try to get him off press coverage, get him in the slot more. Uh, no pitches to the running backs wide. I think basically ECU's pitch game is the swing pass to keep Mitchell and Roger Harris, and they do that quite a bit. I mean, they design those screen, those uh, those type of plays quite a bit. the The swing passes to keep Mitchell at this point, every defense that ECU plays is gonna is going to uh, is gonna prepare for that because they're gonna turn on the first game of the season and see ECU's second or third drive, and they're gonna say, "Hey, we have to make sure this doesn't happen to us." So that's gonna be scouted. There's no doubt about it, especially anytime Keaton's in the game. They're going to protect against the outside run. So, um, you know, they, they've ran that play in the past where they hit the little stutter option and pitch it to the back outside where they kind of get a misdirection going. I, I think at some point this year we'll see that with Keaton Mitchell to try to get him on the edge. I'll be surprised if we don't see that in the second half of the year. Um, does Donnie Kirkpatrick – get brain lock and play calling. Is it me or is the play calling predictable when we get the lead? ECU for you and me ask. Um, I mean, I don't I don't know. I don't think he gets brain lock. I mean, I just think at times the offense gets stagnant. I think at times they did play not to lose Saturday. It felt that way. Um and it's always easy to say that when you end up losing the game. But I do think you know, the last drive in particular stands out, the one before UCF took the lead. You know, you go back to the, the previous drive, and they did run the ball inside with the inside zone with a lot of success. And a lot of people, you know, I went back and rewatched A lot of people thought they were running to the outside. You know, those plays were designed to go inside, and then, you know, either the tight end or tackle would make a good run block, and then Rajay or Keaton would bounce it outside. So a lot of those plays were inside zones that were just bounced outside. So they were running the same play on that final drive that they ran on the previous drive that was very successful. Now, it was clear UCF made an adjustment to it. And so I'm not a huge fan of running first and second down on the final drive. Would have much rather seen them either throw first or second down play action, and it's always easy to second guess. But I just would have liked to see more initiative there because, again, you wind up in third and nine. It seemed pretty obvious UCF was playing the run. And then at that point, as for, for reasons we talked about earlier, your success rate on third and nine is not, not good. 
And so then you're giving the ball back to UCF with all momentum, and we all know what happened. So it did feel like at that point, ECU was playing not to lose, and it ended up costing them. Um, You know, the previous drive, you know, I don't think they were playing that way necessarily. You know, they did run the ball on back-to-back plays once they got inside the UCF 15. Would have maybe liked to see a little bit more aggressiveness there. Then got the sack on third down, kicked the field goal. Uh, Mike Houston told me after the game, it sounded like they may have gone for it on fourth down if if Holton Aylers didn't get sacked. So that's probably not necessarily planned not to lose. They also tried to pass to Omatosha, which if completed is a touchdown or gets you first, you know, that's a big pass play, like a design rollout that uh, the quarterback just missed. And so that's not playing not to lose in that particular scenario. That's just missing the play that was there. So, Again, there's always a balance there. It's not that the offensive coordinator doesn't know how to call plays with the lead. You know, they had the lead on that drive and could have put the game away. It's just, and then maybe on the the next drive, they were a little too careful. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't have the answers. I I try my best to evaluate what's going on and come up with something. But, you know, I don't think the play calling is always predictable when ECU gets the lead. Of course, people want to say it seems that way when things don't go according to plan or when when the the ball doesn't get moved when you had the lead and you're trying to run the ball so you know if I do have a problem with anything it'd probably be that final drive but it's not always that simple as hey everything is on the play calling for being too conservative all right uh speaking of why run our lightest running back up the gut two plays in a row and have a three play one yard drive why not go with the heavy running back if you're determined to run up the gut he asks um well, again, you know, Keaton Mitchell, even on that first run, he looked to bounce that thing outside, and it looked for, like for a split second something might be there. The guy grabs a, his face mask, face mask and drags him down, which is a whole other issue. Um, but, yeah, you know, Rajay was running better in the second half than Keaton, so, you know, hindsight, twenty twenty, maybe you throw him in there. But there's also a chance Keaton Mitchell, Keaton Mitchell breaks one, and the game's over. Nobody's mad. It didn't happen, so everybody's mad. Um, so I don't know. You know, maybe would have liked to seen Rajay there based on how he ran the previous drive, but it you know it didn't happen. Again, would have maybe liked to see a different play call on either first or second down. It didn't happen, and here we are talking about it. All right, uh, final question from ECU for you and me, man. This has been like a whole show in itself. Uh, what will it take for Mike Houston to learn from our in from our offensive ineptitude? or to change some play calls or coaching. You know, again, this is uh you know, this is the third year of this offense. I've said all along this is a huge year for, you know, Holton Aylers, Johnny Kirkpatrick, everybody involved with the offense cuz I feel like we've seen this this unit have consistent or consistency problems. We've seen great performances, we've seen dud performances. Some of it's been due to personnel, some of it's been due to lack of execution, some of it's been due to matchups all that sort of stuff. And, you know, the fact that it is continuing into year three is a concern. There's no doubt about that. Uh, If it continues to the end of the year, I don't know if you'll see a change or not. You know, we'll evaluate that come the end of the year. There are six games left. You're three and three. I do think a lot of people are frustrated with the offense because it feels like the weapons are there, the experience is there, and we're still not seeing the consistent results. So, um. So I don't know. It's it's it is head scratching at times. The whole operation of the offense, and you know if it doesn't get fixed by the end of the year, maybe you see a change, maybe you don't. That's ultimately up to Mike Houston. And a lot will, de- in my opinion, this is my opinion. A lot will depend on how the final six games play out. Figure it out after the bye. You go eight and four. You go seven and five. You know you find that consistency. Then I think that speaks for itself. If the inconsistency continues then I think that speaks for itself as well. So six games left. Uh, I hope I answered all your questions. Easy for you and me. Thanks for uh, thanks for your support as always, man, and for asking so many questions. And I'm, I'm glad I made it through. All right, ECU Jackie Moon, he asked, what, what adjustments would you like to see be made in the bye week? Uh, good question. Um, you know, would like to see the continued implementation of the tight end position. I think that's been something that this staff has really harped on and has done. 
Uh, and I think that they've made an effort to get those guys the ball. Uh, I still want to see them get the ball to him more. And I know that there's only so many balls to go around, but I still want to see Jones touch the ball more because I feel like the last few weeks, every time he's touched the ball, he's getting positive yardage. Calhoun, I think I, I think every ball that has touched Calhoun's hands this year have been catches, even in tight coverage. So I, I want to see Shane Calhoun continue to get targeted. Uh, I think both those guys are, are serious playmakers and matchup problems. The other guy I want to see, and I feel like I've been saying this for two years, Josiah Hatfield, 4-4 speed, and it just feels like he doesn't touch the ball enough. And I don't know if he's just not a good practice player or they don't want to take Audio Matosho or whoever out, but I feel like Josiah Hatfield is not being utilized how he should be utilized. Like I, I just I don't know if he should get the ball on the screens more. They tried, I think, a reverse or a jet sweep against UCF, and he got a couple yards. You know, picked up four or five yards. That's not a bad play, though. First, you know, you do it on first down, you have second and six. That's that's a lot more advantageous than a lot of second downs this year for ECU. So I just would like to see Hatfield be utilized more. Um, His speed and his skill set, you know, I I feel like we have not seen a deep shot to to Hatfield since maybe the first or second game of the year. Um, So that continues to kind of puzzle me a little bit. Uh, defensively, you know, the Aaron Ramsour thing, the guy comes in and makes plays every week, and he, to me, he's just one of your better linebackers. And, I, again, I know that this staff emphasizes practice habits, all that stuff, and they should. That's part of the culture. But the guy just makes plays. He tackles, gets guys on the ground, and to me, he's one of your best linebackers. And I feel like the defense as a whole is better with him on the field. So I want to see more Aaron Ramsour. Um, you know, Chad Stevens is a guy, young, third-year freshman, who's starting to, in my opinion, kind of look the part. And he played some DN last week because Hickman was banged up. But he's just kind of steadily done his job the last few games. Hasn't played a ton of snaps, but has been, you know, in his gap, doing his thing. And I think he's a guy you could see the second half of the year. I love the rotation up front defensively. They used, I think, 10 or 11 down defensive linemen, all underclassmen in the UCF game. Man, keep running them out there. I mean, that position in in two or three years is going to be special, especially with what they're adding with J.D. Lampley and C.J. Mims. Uh, So those are a couple things in terms of things I would like to see differently. Um, Off the top of my head, all right, any insights into the up-and-down play of the offensive line where it seems each week a new player struggles? I mean, that – yeah, I mean, that is a concern – it does feel like, like this past week, Nashad Strother, uh, per, per pro football focus, and again, there's some mixed opinions in the industry on pro football focuses, uh, evaluation of players, specifically on the offensive line, but, you know, Nashad Strother struggled in pass pro, as did Justin Chase. The left side of the line just really struggled in pass pro at times against, uh, against UCF, and part of that is matchups, but... You also expect those guys who are pretty experienced at this point to be more consistent. You know, Avery Jones, you kind of understand the early inconsistency due to playing center for the first time in his career. The last few weeks, he's been much better. So that's a positive sign. You know, Fernando Fry has been solid at guard for most of the year. Noah Henderson, I can understand some of the inconsistency because he's been banged up and he's playing through a lot of stuff right now. So you got to give that guy a lot of kudos. Um, So... But it has been weird how it's been one player. Like, even even against Tulane, Sean Bailey comes off the bench and plays extremely well after not grading out super well in the previous week. So, I don't know. It, it's, it does seem like, for whatever reason, that unit from week to week is very up and down in terms of individual players. Like, we've seen, and some of it I think is matchup, because we've seen them dominate Tulane, which has a solid defensive line, but not a great one. UCF, which has more talent up front, really took it to ECU. So maybe it truly is just a matchup thing, but it does concern you that it's kind of a different guy each week. So to answer your question, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. That's a tough one to answer. Uh, why in the world? This is from 1990 ECU fan. Why in the world did we rush three on that last UCF offensive position? Rush five. If the freshman quarterback from UCF beats us on the blitz, so be it. Yeah, I mean. This is another one, hindsight 2020. 
you know, I said my VIP takeaways column, I would have liked to seen ECU do what it does in the biggest play of the drive, maybe the biggest play of the season, uh, certainly the biggest play of the game. And, you, you know, you didn't lose that game on the one play. I've seen a lot of people say you lost that game on that one play. No, I mean, you lost that game for several reasons. But certainly that one is magnified because of the situation. They took a timeout before it. They elect to go coverage. And, you know, maybe they all thought, out, out thought themselves a little bit because I'm sure UCF was expecting a blitz. They go coverage. And if you go back and rewatch the play, you know, the, the interesting thing is maybe it is the right call because UCF, like they ran a man beater. E- ECU falls into zone coverage. They just rush three. And nobody's open initially. The problem is ECU's got two linebackers at the sticks. For whatever reason, they keep dropping back and keep sinking back, and they sink too far back. Running back leaks out and easily gets the first down because neither linebacker jumps up and, and, and gets on him or realizes it. So, on one hand, yeah, maybe if you blitz there, you force Keen to chunk it up just like he had done a, a play earlier. I mean, they brought the house on third and eight, and he just threw up a prayer in Jaquan McMillan's direction, and McMillan had him blanketed. But you caught time out there. I'm sure UCF felt good about a man-beater play because they probably thought they were going to get a blitz. ECU goes coverage. It ends up backfiring, whether it be the play car or execution. I think personally a little bit of both. And it is what it is. So why in the world do you rush three? Because you're trying to outsmart UCF. Maybe next time you just play your game, you're a blitzing team. Maybe you just go after him and say, what the hell? If they beat us deep, they beat us deep, and in that scenario, the good thing is you got plenty of time left on the clock instead of getting the ball back with 20 seconds. So uh, I, I think all things considered, I would have liked to have seen a blitz there, at least bring five, like you said. But if that play works out, if the linebacker picks up the back and Keen dumps it off to the back and he gets tackled a yard short of the first down, everybody's celebrating. We're not having this conversation. They, you know, They played coverage on the – the first third and long of uh, the second half, and it ends in a Juwan Powell interception. So, you know, it's it, it's fun to debate this stuff because that's why, you know, we're fans of the game, so we can always second guess and talk about these things. But it's, you know, it's not always as, as dry and cut as it seems. You know, I've seen a lot of people say it was the worst call they've ever seen in their lives to, to, to not bring pressure there. I don't agree with that. You know, is it a questionable call? Maybe based on how it played out. But if the linebacker or whatever picks up the back, then we're not having this conversation. So uh, it is what it is. But I understand the frustration. All right, SC Johnson 0408. While 3 and 3 looks good on paper, and most would have taken it to start the year, given how weak one of the wins was, parentheses Charleston Southern, and how terrible the offense looked in two of the losses, US, USC and UCF in a week ske- is a weak schedule covering up a lack of improvement. Uh, I think, I think the program as a whole is is obviously improving. So I, I I don't think so in terms of your question. You know, the one area that you could make an argument for obviously is the offense, and I think that's where a lot of the frustration stems from. I mean, certainly the defense has made significant progress in several areas, and with an extremely young roster on the defensive side. The biggest concern is the offense in terms of the continued inconsistency. And the, um, let's see how to phrase this, the continued inconsistency with some older players. And, you know, there's been signs of improvement. For for, for comparison's sake, you, you compare Tulane year over year. ECU's offense ran the ball for 35 yards against Tulane last year. This year they run for 310. That's pretty significant improvement. Yeah, Tulane lost two NFL defensive ends, but those guys are more pass rushers than run stoppers. So, you know, there's been improvement in certain areas, especially in the run blocking side of things. The passing game continues to be a struggle. Um, So that is the area that is uh, inconsistent. And in my opinion, I don't think anybody has said, hey, I don't think anybody can, can look at the passing game right now with a straight face and say it's improved from even 2019. I think it's just continued to be hit or miss and inconsistent. So that's the concern. Defensively, you're seeing significant improvement. Special teams has been good all year. 
Uh, kicking game has improved, I think, weekly with a young kicker. Running game, I think, has improved year over year. So, you know, the passing game is the one area where you haven't seen a lot of improvement. Uh, weak schedule or not, strong schedule, however you want to phrase it. Uh, I think either way you slice it, that's the one area that has not improved. And, you know, who is that an indictment on? You know, that's for for people to decide. Uh, all right, Berg Pirate, he asked, does Mike Houston feel the same way about this year's offensive play calling as he did about the defensive play calling in 2019? Again, I, I don't know. I can't get inside Mike Houston's head. You know, I, I think he he likes Donnie Kirkpatrick a lot. He's uh, he stuck with him the last few years despite the inconsistencies. You know, the thing with Bob Trot was Bob Trot, from what I can gather, was not willing to adapt and run a multiple defense. So I think we've seen times when Donnie Kirkpatrick has adapted and done some different things. The problem is it's just it seems like at times this offense still lacks an identity. So uh, to answer your question, I, I don't know. I can't get inside Mike Houston's head. I guess we'll find out at the end of the season uh, if things continue to trend in this direction or whatever. Straw 369. Uh, what changes would you like to see come out of the bye week? Uh, what, whether it be new personnel or packages, I uh, kind of hit on this earlier. So, um, check, yeah, uh, I'm not going to answer that just because I kind of hit on that earlier. Uh, Straw three six nine. Second question: What has been your biggest surprise and biggest disappointment within the first half of the season? Oh, uh, biggest surprise! You know, I have to go Keaton Mitchell. I knew he was good. I didn't know he was this good. Like, he's gone from being, like, a solid AAC starter in my mind to, like, a legitimate NFL draft pick in a couple of years just based off his explosive ability. Um, so that's been huge. Biggest disappointment, definitely the passing game, the inconsistency. You know, C.J. Johnson I really thought would have a bounce-back year, and that just has not, just has not happened. It, it's just he has not been able to find that freshman year success in terms of catches and yards and all that stuff, and – you know, based upon expectations, it's been a disappointment. So the passing game as a whole, uh, you know, another good thing, though, with CJ not making those plays at this point or not getting open, not getting the amount of targets. Audio Matosha, super, super, uh, super awesome guy, super proud of uh, what he's been able to do. And, you know, he, he, I tell you what, going out to practice, man, nobody works harder than Audio Matosho. He deserves this success, and I'm happy for him. So he's definitely been a positive at the wide receiver position for the Pirates. Uh, Riceville Pirate 85, he asks, can you talk about how important it will be for us to find an impact guy on the edge next year? Yeah, I mean, I think I look at this defense, and, like, there's a lot that I like. The corners, in my opinion, are legit. And Jaquan McMillan and Malik Fleming are special. The safety play has been a little inconsistent at times, but you have the athletes there that you need. Linebackers, I want to see continue to improve, but I feel like you got some young guys on the roster who, who can definitely play in this league. You know, interior D-line, you got plenty of bodies. Those guys are going to continue to develop. Edge-wise, you know, you don't have that prototypical lengthy edge rusher, really. You know, Jeremy Lewis kind of fits that mold, but he's in his first year transitioning from offense to defense, so he's understandably been a little up and down. You know, Chad Stevens is a solid player, but he's almost more built like an inside linebacker. Um, so he, he, I think he'll be solid against the run. I don't know if he'll ever be able to develop into like a dominant pass rusher or anything like that, unless he pulls a Nate Harvey uh, and just, you know, defies the odds. And, uh, you know, DeBru, solid defensive end, I think should be a better pass rusher than he's showing right now. Still very young in his career, though. Emmanuel Hickman has come on strong. But you still don't have that prototypical outside backer who can stand up and rush the passer consistently. And I feel like that's one of the big things this defense is missing. You even look at Houston coming in or playing them in a couple weeks. They have two super highly rated edge guys who basically just, if you leave them in one-on-one blocking situations, you're going to struggle offensively. So ECU doesn't really have that right now defensively. So, like, when you go up against ECU and you're an offensive coordinator, you don't have to game plan for anybody on the defensive front necessarily. You just play your game. And if you have that edge guy, then all of a sudden you have to really kind of game plan around that, especially just one guy who can take over a game. And that's not easy to find. So I'm not saying, like, ECU is going to be able to go out and find the next Vaughn Miller. 
or uh, T.J. Watt or anything. Like those dudes are hard to find. They're playing in the Power Five because there's not many of them to go around. But you know, if there's ever a time to get one, an impact one, it would be in the transfer portal. If you can make enough progress this year as a defense and kind of sell to your vision of hey, this one edge rusher, you come in, you can be our guy. You can change our defense, take it to the next level. Or you, you recruit a guy who's 6'4", 6'5", and you develop him. The problem is that usually takes two to three years realistically. So you can find maybe an impact guy in the portal if you can get him to come here. Otherwise, you're going to have to do it through recruiting. But it is a huge, glaring thing, in my opinion, as defense has to find to take that next step. Uh, Pirates R Us says, What was your opinion of the talent disparity in person? Spoke with a source who said they still thought the talent disparity was huge despite the close score. You know, I'll be honest, being there, man, and I wasn't on the field. We were up in the press box. I didn't think the talent disparity was that huge. The one area it was noticeable was UCF's defensive line against ECU's offensive front. That was a huge talent disparity. I mean, UCF as a whole is is faster, more talented than ECU, but the, the gap has been shrunk significantly. Um, I think we saw with the way the DBs ran and tackled UCS receivers on the short passes, how much it has shrunk. You compare that to ECU's first year there under Mike Houston. UCF would catch those five, seven-yard passes and just take it to the house because nobody could get them on the ground. So, you know, defensive line-wise, ECU has some talent. they got to continue to develop those guys along. You know, UCF has more raw talent, but the, the, the gap has been shrunk significantly. Um, and so, you know, I don't know. The biggest talent disparity for me was, was their fronts, specifically the defensive line versus ECU's offensive line. Again, to blitz only two times out of 36 times and still have your way in terms of pass rush, that is concerning. Um, but outside of that, I thought the, the corners, the DBs matched up pretty good with UCS personnel. And, uh, that, you know, that, that's kind of what I saw from the bird's eye view. Uh, GSO Pirate, how much has ECU football improved in the last two years as the current program compared to how Mike Houston thought it would look? Um, you know, I, I, the, the program has improved a lot in terms – we just kind of touched on there. The talent, the growth you've seen from 19 to 21, I think is significant. I think there are still a lot of young players in the program, specifically on the offensive line. You know, even uh, at some of the skill positions that are super talented but have not come anywhere near reaching their ceiling. Like, I think Mason Garcia, long-term, has super upside as a quarterback. And Holt Naylor's the better quarterback right now, based on the experience, everything we've seen. The Mason Garcia and ceiling is to be an NFL draft pick, if everything comes together. So, I mean... You've got some young guys in the program who aren't necessarily playing right now, and you have the same thing at receiver, offensive line, uh, you know, secondary defensive line who who are even probably more talented than the guys who are playing a lot above them, but still have to be developed, still have to learn their way. And then you got the guys that are playing that are better than what we're playing in 2019 already. So the talent of the program has improved significantly. There are still some things I think that the staff could do put the guys in a better position to succeed. You know, offensively, we talked about it. Like a Josiah Hatfield, in my opinion, third year in the program, there's no reason he should not be a vital guy who's touching the ball five to eight times a week at minimum. Like he just has too much explosive ability. We talked about the tight ends, all that stuff. So um, I still think there are some things they can do differently, but I think that the program overall is certainly trending in the right direction. You should have beat South Carolina, an SEC team, a down SEC team, granted, but a, a, an SEC team at home. You know, under Scotty Montgomery, I firmly believe South Carolina would have just lined up and ran the football down ECU's throats, and the Pirates would have lost 30-10. to 10. Uh, You had a chance to win that game. Same thing against UCF. The talent discrepancy, still there a little bit, but has been made up a lot. And... Two years ago, it was no comparison. Now you're in a position to win that game. So how much has the program improved? A lot. Now can they take that next step to where, hey, you've improved the talent. Now can you consistently win close games? That's what the second half of the season is going to be about because you're going to be in a lot of close games 
And ultimately, how you play, how you finish, is going to determine the success of this team. And ultimately, how much you improve is decided by the win column and the loss column. Four and eight first year, three and six last year, and really four and five. We know what happened against Tulsa. Uh, three and three this year. You got six games left. Five, in my opinion, winnable games left. Four really winnable games. You know, I think Houston and Cincinnati are going to be double-digit underdogs. The rest of them should be toss-ups. And so we'll see. By the end of the year, we'll have a much better uh, feeling. My feeling right now is the program has improved a lot. All right, final question. ECU Pirate 99, a little ingest here. Should we all just go fly a kite? He's, of course, referencing Mike Houston's comment after the Tulane game. Here's my thing with the kite deal. You know, I think Coach Houston was not directing that at, like, your average ECU fan who supports the program. And I posted this after he said it. You know, there was a lot of comments early this season and after the UCF game where guys are tweeting at the players, Holt Nailers, Mike Houston, other players, etc., and tagging them in their tweets and basically just cussing, talking nonsense, personal attacks. Like that stuff, guys, is uncalled for. And when you have when you have social media, you can't not see it. You log in and it's in your mentions, you're gonna see it. So like that type of, of vitriol and you know, disgusting tweets, that type of personal stuff, like that to me is crossing a line and just I believe that's who Mike Houston's talking about. He's not talking about the loyal fans who show up to the game, support the program, and you can critique the program. That's college football. You know, you're going to have fair critics out there. Hell, I get on this podcast, and I question some of the things they do. I try to do it in a professional manner. You know, I've obviously got relationships with some of the coaches and players, and but they understand it's my job to get up here and talk about it and answer you guys' questions. They understand it's, you know, it's the passionate fan base that's going to question what they do. They're going to hold the coaches accountable. That's part of being at a big-time college football program. So I don't think it's Mike Houston attacking and telling every ECU fan that's not happy with a certain play call or whatever to go fly a kite. It's more, hey, if you're going to sit there and cuss at the starting quarterback or chant for Mason Garcia or say the coaching staff sucks or the whole nailer sucks and he should transfer to South Alabama or whatever, uh, like that stuff to me is that's not really loyal fans. That's just kind of reactionary, overreactionary, um, kind of over-the-top stuff that really has no place on social media. And that's the, the worst part about social media. And there's a lot of good stuff about it. But I think that's who he was directing that comment to, not to your average fan who's on Hoisted Colors asking questions about the game. So um, that's my take on it. Uh, and that's this podcast. Man, that was a long one. A lot of questions. A lot of good stuff from you guys. Again, Appreciate the uh, the response, as always. I know we always get more questions after a loss, and for good reasons. There's always a lot more uh, talking points in many cases, especially in a game like that where every single play could have been the difference between winning and losing. And one little mistake here or there is a valid, you know, it's valid to go back and look at every little thing. So I uh, appreciate you guys. We're over an hour, so I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. On this Monday night, we'll be back later in the week again. Bye week for ECU this week at Houston next week. We'll be making the trip to Texas, so we'll have all that coverage next week. We'll talk maybe uh, a little bit of the first half recap as a whole, put kind of a bow on the first six games later this week. I'll try to get a guest on to discuss that later on in the week. But appreciate you guys listening to the Hoist the Colors podcast. We'll, We'll talk to you next time.
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.